there's some commonalities among the abduction stories, right? One of the things that struck me that maybe a lot of people don't know about, I was watching and it was after the 2015 when I realized that these things, I should be paying some attention. I was watching and talked by John Mack, a Harvard psychiatrist who was study, who started out studying abductions as a psychiatric problem and then came to the conclusion that yeah, well, the, the explanation why these people think they're being abducted by aliens is really quite simple. They're probably being abducted by aliens. <laughs> you know, that was his conclusion, right? Which I found a little shocking. So, but I, you know, watching one of his talks, I was stunned to find that, you know, he had hundreds of abductees, purported abductees from around the world, you know, from, you know, Chicago, Congo, Nepal, everywhere. And they, their stories were that similar. One of the similarities that he mentioned really struck me because this isn't something you're going to make up or, and it wasn't widely known at the time. And it was the fact that 60% of the people, it was something like, no, I mean, don't quote numbers exactly because I'm not sure exactly what the numbers were, but I'm going from memory from what I saw in his talk. But he said something like 60% of the people who are abducted by what they describe as gray aliens are off, are given babies to hold before they're taken back. And I remember him saying this, I was like, what? <laughs> are you kidding me? Hey, Unexplained Ones, this is Dr. Mounts with All Things Unexplained. If you like our brand of truth-seeking, positive, paranormal podcast, then you can support the show at BigfootUFO.com. At BigfootUFO.com, you can make donations, find All Things Unexplained swag, check out all our social media links, and more. Another way you can help is wherever you're watching or listening, make sure to follow, comment, and share. The show would not be possible without your support, and we appreciate every one of you. And now, Professor Kevin Knuth. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Did the CIA write Wind of Change by the Scorpions? <laughs> <laughs> As humans busied themselves about the various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied. Dr. Loeb, what percentage chance do you give it that you have indeed uncovered extraterrestrial or non-human technology? With infinite complacence, people went about their affairs, yet across an immense ethereal gulf, intellects vast and unsympathetic drew their plans against us. Prior to your abduction, did you believe in UFOs or any sort of alien life form? All things unexplained. So some of that I think there will save for closed session. Hello, all you unexplained ones out there. Thank you for joining us. We are so lucky to have with us on this show, Dr. Kevin Knuth. And I have to say, Dr. Knuth, I really appreciated your article, Are We Alone? The Question is Worthy of Serious Scientific Study, because you really took into account, I think you called it the culture of UFOs, right? Like you did not ignore 
all the aspects of UFOs, and I appreciate that. We've had scientists on before who are very narrowly focused, and you can understand that, but, you know, besides the data that they collect, there is nothing else, right? They don't consider anything else. But here you were openly taking into consideration and acknowledging these other aspects of ufology like ufo abductions for example well thank you and so i really appreciated that i thank you i think that a lot of scientists will fall back on the idea that well this isn't scientifically collected data so i can't deal with it and to some sense in, in some sense they're right i mean you're not going to publish any research papers about this because it's not scientifically collected data but it's um and i think this is coming from a, a, an insecurity or, a, you know, that they feel dealing with this type of topic, that this is a taboo topic. Um, and, but the fact is you can, you can learn from information. It might not be what we, what we scientists would call data. And sometimes, you know, people call it anecdotal data or anecdata for short, you know, but we do learn from anecdotes and you can learn from things from anecdotes and you can sometimes believe what people say. People sometimes tell the truth. <laughs> I mean, that's just all there is to it. And, 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 you know, I've heard scientists say, well, you can't just listen to what people say. And, and, and I think, why not? I listen to what people say all day long. And so do you. Right. And you can't function in daily life without believing what people tell you. And I don't just disbelieve when something weird happens or fantastical happens. And most of us don't. And this is how we operate. And to not pay any attention to these things as a scientist is problematic. Yeah, you can't use it to do detailed work. That's true. But you can use it to say, to get to the point to where you realize, well, this is interesting because there's some commonality here and there's some commonalities among the abduction stories, right? Mm-hmm. There sure are. One of the things that struck me that maybe a lot of people don't know about, I was watching and it was after the 2015 when I realized that these things, I should be paying some attention. I was watching a talk by John Mack, a Harvard psychiatrist who was study, who started out studying abductions as a psychiatric problem and then came to the conclusion that yeah, well, the, the explanation why these people think they're being abducted by aliens is really quite simple. They're probably being abducted by aliens. <laughs> you know, that was his conclusion. Yes. Right? Which I found a little shocking. So, but I, you know, watching one of his talks, I was stunned to find that, you know, he had hundreds of abductees, purported abductees from around the world, you know, from, you know, Chicago, Congo, Nepal, everywhere. And they, their stories were that similar. One of the similarities that he mentioned really struck me because this isn't something you're going to make up or, and it wasn't widely known at the time. And it was the fact that 60% of the people, it was something like, don't, I mean, don't quote numbers exactly because I'm <laughs> not sure exactly what the numbers were, but I'm going from memory from what I saw in his talk. But he said something like 60% of the people who are abducted by what they describe as gray aliens are, off, are given babies to hold before they're taken back. And I remember him saying this. I was like, what? <laughs> are you kidding me? Alien babies or human babies? No. Well, 
that's all mixed up. Sometimes they're human babies. Sometimes they're uh -huh. not. The people aren't quite sure whether they're human babies. And so it's not clear what's going on. This lines up with what Robert Salas told us, too. But it was 60% of the people out of hundreds um, all say this from around the world. And I thought, this is, there is something to this. I mean, this is, this, is, this is the type of correlation where a scientist then ought to be paying attention. And they don't, you know, they say this mm -hmm. and they think nonsense and they turn it all off and don't look, right? Um, don't look through the telescope. You know, this is where the Galileo Project gets its name, you know, from the bishops who refuse right. to look through the telescope. Don't look because it's nonsense. Um, but it's not nonsense. There's something to this. Um, and, and, and yes, could it be a psychiatric disorder? Maybe that's what John Mack was trying to investigate. And his conclusion was that it wasn't. That caused a lot of trouble for him. Robert Salas actually was abducted. I don't think many people know that. <laughs> when he told yes. us on our show, he was very hesitant to tell us his story. And he did tell us his story. And it was shocking. It actually really changed a lot in my own brain and caused a lot of disruption in my sleep and in my life for some of the things that he shared with us and trying to wrap my head around it and a lot of fear, honestly, after he shared what he shared about kids and abductions. What, what's interesting is that what I, what I found now that I've been working in this field is that when you talk to, when you get to know some of the other serious people, other scientists even, or military people who have, you know, who have, or have interest in these topics, um, a surprising number of them claim to have been abducted mm -hmm. and a surprising number of them um, have had paranormal encounters as well. I mean, these, this is, there, there's, again, something's weird going on here. I don't know what that is. Um, I've not been abducted. Uh, thankfully, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> it does not sound like fun to me. Um, but there's some weird commonalities here, and this is where this is where the UFO phenomenon touches on these, you know, weird paranormal-like connections. You know, these weird connections that people really can't explain and make everybody uncomfortable. They make they make UFO people uncomfortable. There's what I the way I I how do I deal with this sort of thing? Because being a you know a real scientist is you know, a professional scientist, I, I, the way I deal with this to remind myself, there is just real mystery here. This mm -hmm. is a topic, this is a topic that's broad, that's never ever been carefully studied, except by a, maybe a handful of people whose, you know, whose um, findings aren't, are strange. I, I try to see this as opportunity rather than um, something you want to run away from. You know, we had um, the very talented Patricia Cornwell on our show recently. She's an author. She's written many books. And she said something that struck me, similar to what you're saying in terms of scientific study and what have you, is that she doesn't believe in magic. She just believes there are many things science hasn't answered yet. <laughs> we just don't have the science for it yet. And if we don't have scientists like yourself trying to figure it out, we will never have the science for it. So we do need more people like you on the ground studying these things, trying to figure there it out. There is a lot we don't understand. And I think that that is what gets lost on 
many scientists. I mean, be, it's not part of our education. I mean, the way, especially as a physicist, the way that we learn physics is we know this, we know this, we know this, we know this, and we got all these great people who figured out all these great things, and that's what you learn. You don't learn what's not known. You don't learn, um, you know, about that type, those types of things. You learn what's known, and in fact, it, it's such a strong almost indoctrination and it's not i don't that's how the word has many negative con, um, connotations but but it's such it's it turns out to be almost an indoctrination because but that's just the way it's taught i mean this is you're teaching the 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 field of physics is complicated and it's built up from small pieces and you teach it on how you teach it in the way that it's built up that's the best way to to learn it um, but it gives you the impression that everything's known and, um, and it was for me such a big problem when I was applying to graduate schools, you know, I, when I was in a se my senior year in college, I, I remember telling my parents thinking, I, I, I don't know what I would like to study. I, I, everybody's, everything's been figured out. I don't know what to do. <laughs> there's nothing left. And, and I, there's nothing to do. And I was interested in general rel relativity and, and space time and, and that. And I said, but Einstein did it all. And, they, they, you know, these guys did it all. But um, the fact is they didn't do it all. Right. And there's there are big there are big questions, you know, and and I can list set many of them that physicists will agree with aren't known. I mean, we don't know. We don't know how gravity gets along with quantum mechanics. That's a big unknown. That's a huge unknown. We don't know why there's four forces, you know, the electromagnetic force, the 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 weak force, the strong nuclear force, and the gravitational force. We don't know why there's four. We don't know why there's three dimensions of space-time. There's these are all big questions, and um, there's a lot that's not known, and there's a lot that we know isn't known. Um, but then the question, but then what never gets asked is what is there that's not known that we don't know about, right? And, this is, <laughs> and, and so once, when you start digging into some of this weird stuff, you know, UFOs and the associated phenomena, you realize our knowledge is a lot like Swiss cheese. We literally walk around the holes and say, oh no, it's all perfectly fine. And we don't look into the holes. Uh, we try not to look into the holes. And I think that's part of the problem. There's a lot, there is a lot we don't know about the universe. and um, There's a lot that we don't know that we don't know about. <laughs> yeah. I think that's true, too. And I think that scientists don't like to acknowledge such things. And that's um, not part of our training. And I think that's a problem. Of the things that we know that we don't know, <laughs> is there one that you would like to see answered or solved in your lifetime? Oh, I, well, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know. All of them. That would be funny. Um, of the things we know we don't know, well, I, I just finished up two theoretical papers, which I'm going to submit for publication tonight. They're not even on the archive yet. But oh. we uh, actually have a have a derivation of why it ends up having, it ends up coming out of it as being part of that as being why space has three dimensions. Okay. And so I'm going to actually submit that to a journal tonight, and we'll probably put that on the archive in the next week or so. But but the the interesting 
aspect of these two papers. So these are pure physics papers, nothing to do with UFOs or any other weird stuff. Sure. But this, the, the ideas that came from thinking of mathematics as a technology rather than something that's discovered. Mathematics is a human invention. And if you're going to assign numbers to things, and you, we, why do we assign numbers to things? We assign numbers to things so that we can rank them, right? We can tell whether one thing is bigger than another. And so if you're going to do this, then it turns out that there are, when you have certain symmetries in how things are combined, then the those symmetries are going to dictate how the numbers have to be assigned so that it's always consistent. And that's why mathematics works. And that's been a big question. That is a question that people don't realize. There's a wonderful paper by, um, by Eugene Figner, a, a, a physicist called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. And the question is, why does math work? And, and you realize that when you start digging into this, that it's not at all obvious that math should work. There's some wonderful quotes, and here's this is where I cheat. I get to I'm actually opening my paper, and I'll I'll read a quote. From, <laughs> hey, this from is breaking Fine news Snake, for us. We're Snake getting Snake. an advanced reading of this paper that hasn't been published <laughs> well, this yet. Is be, so this is going to we'll be a quote. So this is going to be a quote from um, Richard Feynman, and um, because he summed it up really nicely and summed up the mystery nicely. And, and this is these again. These are things that we don't understand that aren't appreciated and I'm just opening I just opened the PDF file in my LaTeX editor which is not really <laughs> a big deal. The, the, science, the scientists who are listening would know exactly what I did wrong <laughs> and probably giggle at it but yeah so let's see where is Feynman in this oh my god how am I not finding this immediately <laughs> <laughs> All good. I don't know. Did you guys hear my computer ring earlier? Like the phone rang on my computer. Did that come through the microphone? I didn't notice. No, anything. I did not. Oh gosh, that. I didn't know my computer could do that. First, right, so here's, here's a really great quote from Feynman from 1967 that I found. Um, so the paper, there's a, two papers. They come in pairs. So the first paper basically outlines the why we, you know, why um, we use mathematics in science. And the, basically sets the, 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 the mental stage on how to think about mathematics differently. And then the second paper actually applies that to derive. We actually show that the mathematics of relativistic quantum mechanics has to be the way it is, which is shocking that you can actually get it so simply. So Feynman wrote, I find it quite amazing that it is possible to predict what will happen by mathematics, which is simply following rules which really have nothing to do with the actual, the original thing. <laughs> when you true. think about that, that's kind of amazing. I mean, yeah. I remember doing this as a graduate student. We had, I, I, I was taking um, quantum field theory, which is an advanced graduate class. And the final homework problem, which was horrible, it was the, we had, were given a month to do it. Um, I was at the University oh, of Minnesota. Geez. We were given a month to do this. And the, we were to calculate the cross section for a collision between a, pro a positron and an electron in a collider, which is basically what's the probability that they'll collide and interact. We had to calculate this. And we had to do it by hand 
the professor wouldn't let us to do any any of the integrals using integral tables. We had to do the calculus all by hand, everything by hand. And he, I remember, he gave us the assignment, and I, I don't want to say his name online, but it was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, looking back, it was fantastic, but it's horrifying. He said, he said, it will be pages and pages and weekends and weekends, and I will assign it. So you. Ought to get started right away. He, he gave us this assignment in, in early November, and it was due in December. And it was pages and pages. Mine was 65 pages of calculations long. What if you mess up a calculation, though? I mean, how do you figure out and where you, you did wrong? And you do, and I did. Oh. I, was, I was off by a factor of two, and I could oh. not find that factor of two. And he gave me an incomplete for the class because oh. I did not solve the problem, which meant I had to go back and figure out where that was. And I resolve that problem i don't know like five or six times over the course of a year and a half and then finally 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 just let me go i said just give me an f <laughs> i don't care at this point i don't care um but but yeah it, it's it's hard to do it's hard to do that by yeah. you know by hand 65 pages um but that's insane but it was <laughs> but you know while you're working on that you're thinking all along thinking there's no way I'm going to get the right answer. And it's obvious. How, how is any of this math related to physical reality? How, how is it that, that 65 <laughs> majors of math can actually tell me what's going to happen in a, in a right. collider? And, and we don't really think of that as students, maybe until you're doing a problem like this. And, um, but it's not obvious why the math works. But it does work and it works everywhere. Right. And it, and it always works. It's yeah. beautiful. It works everywhere. Why? And that's and so that's so that's really what our first paper is about. Why why math works. And this is something Tim brings up. Sorry to interrupt you. Tim brings this up all the time that if we are going to somehow contact some type of other extraterrestrial beings, the only way that we will be able to communicate with them would be through math. That, that probably is one of the only ways we'll really be able to communicate. That's I would agree that that's probably would be the best way. Yes. All right, Tim, take us to the next, the next part. What else were you wanting to dive into here? I just want to say, you know, and by the way, we're talking to Professor Kevin Knuth. You've seen him on Encounters on Netflix. You've seen him on A Terror in the Sky. I rented A Terror in the Sky on Amazon via Gaia. I'm not exactly sure how that worked still exactly, but it worked. <laughs> and I was also told that it you can watch it on the Roku channel, A Tear in the That's Sky. That's where I watched so, it. Yes, and after I rented it, I found out it was for free on the Roku <laughs> channel. But and now you get to hear them on All Things Unexplained. It was money well spent. I really enjoyed uh, both of them, and he's here with us tonight, and we're so appreciative. I mean, speaking, Dr. Knuth, of your television appearances I feel like this paper, this scientific paper, launched your television career. I might be wrong, but in 2019, you wrote a little paper called Estimating Flight Characteristics of Anomalous Unidentified Aerial Vehicles. And it is, it is an impressive paper. But you get into the 2004 Nimitz encounters off the coast of California. Can you remind our listeners and us as well except and and it would be great to hear in your own words what happened on the nimitz 
<laughs> what happened? The, I don't know if I can say what happened on the Nimbus, but I can tell you about the speeds and accelerations of those, the objects that they observed. To do those calculations as being a first pass of what I might be able to do as a physicist. I, you know, so this was 2000, what, 2019 I was published, so, so I was already working on this in 2018 probably the summer of 2018 or so, or actually probably would have been in the spring. And that was, so that's shortly after the ATIP program is revealed in the New York Times article. And I thought, well, as a physicist, what can I actually do? What, what can I, you know, I don't have solid data from anybody, but is there, are there cases where I can estimate something from the data? And I, and I realized, especially in the Nimitz case, that there were a few examples where there was, there were the descriptions of the events were sufficiently detailed that I could at least estimate speeds and accelerations. And so that's what I, I had started to do. I had done that. And, and then I went to the meeting, um, the SCU meeting, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, which was in Huntsville, Alabama. And Robert Powell and Peter Reale had done their own analysis of the 2004 Nimitz encounters, and they were getting similar results that I was. I mean, we were, were doing the calculations that any scientist ought to be doing. We agreed, and I and I realized, I thought, you know, this really just needs to be written up as a scientific paper at this point. We probably can do this. And so I, so I teamed up with them. I didn't want to, especially after having seen their presentation on their work and and I had already done some work and knew that it was similar and I was getting some results. I thought, well, I can't really go and publish a paper without including them. <laughs> that would not be cool. So I, and I thought, and in fact, it's better to team up because we can use different techniques and compare and both, you know, check each other's work and all of that. So, so we teamed up and we wrote this paper. The Nimitz encounter is interesting because you have a few different ways in which the tic-tac-shaped objects were encountered. First, they were observed by Senior Chief Kevin Day, who was a radar operator on the USS Princeton in the Nimitz Carrier Group. They were located off the coast of Southern California at the time. And Kevin Day had been observing these objects on radar for, I think, a little, little around two weeks. They would drop in um, they would appear on his radar at about 80,000 feet. That was basically the ceiling for his radar. And usually in the vicinity of um, Catalina Island, which is off the coast of Southern California, near near Laguna Beach, which is where we filmed a tear in the sky. We went back to that location to try to collect data for that reason. But they would appear on his radar at 80,000 feet, drop down to about 28,000 feet, and then they would cruise south along the coast a very slow speed around around 100 knots or so so 120 miles an hour or something like this which at 28,000 feet there's not that much air so you an airplane can't fly at 100 miles an hour at that altitude you fall out of the sky so the speeds of these objects were way too slow <laughs> and that really bothered um, Kevin Day thought these aren't just airplanes; these are strange things. And eventually, and and there were times when they would um, drop from the twenty-eight thousand feet height to sea level, and would do so in about 0.78 seconds. So it would take three quarters of a second for it to go from twenty-eight thousand feet to sea level. That's about five miles of height. 
Yeah, that in, makes no in sense. Three quarters of a second. That's shocking. Mm-hmm. And and I thought, well, that I can do something with. I I know the height. I have some idea of what the errors are going to be. I don't know the precise errors of the equipment, but I can estimate what they probably would be. And I can give you an estimate for the speeds of an, ex- an accelerations. And if you do that, the accelerations turn out to be about the, the minimum acceleration. So the minimum acceleration, you, you, there's two extremes that could happen. You could instantaneously accelerate to whatever speed you're going to travel and then travel at that constant speed to the bottom and then just instantaneously stop, right? Now, that's, that's, in that case, I could calculate that speed. So that's one situation. The other situation is that you would accelerate at a constant rate to the midpoint and then decelerate at the same rate to stopping at the bottom. And that gives you the minimum acceleration. And I thought, well, that's the most useful thing to, to estimate. Because then I can confidently say these things at least had to accelerate at this rate. And we know this I and mean, nobody's it's it's indisputable i mean it's a, it'll be indisputable so i thought this is the solid thing to calculate and if you do this that that acceleration is about about 5600 g's is the mean acceleration <laughs> that's 5000 times the acceleration of gravity goodness people people aren't going to survive this people can't no. survive more than about 11 10 11 g's for anything over a few milliseconds. Right. Our equipment can't survive this. An F-35 fighter will have its wings ripped off at about 13 and a half Gs. Hmm. Missiles can survive a bit higher um, accelerations. They can maneuver up to about 30 Gs and the airframes can handle maybe 60 Gs, but that's it. I mean, but we're talking these Tic Tacs were accelerating at minimum 5,600 Gs. Can I ask something about that, Professor Knuth? Yeah, of course. What does that tell you about the mass of these objects? That it, it, it's not clear at all what's going on. Um, there's, there, um, you aren't going to be able to accelerate a f- physical object at those rates um, in the conventional sense because you're just going to break all the equipment inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll be destroying the craft. Hmm. which clearly isn't happening so that's so already very strange so that so the point of the paper basically is to highlight that given what was observed this is clearly anomalous we don't have an explanation for what's going on the 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 other main point is that if you're going to accelerate halfway and then decelerate that means at the midpoint you're going to be moving at your highest speed and you can estimate what that speed is. And that turns out to be about 45,000 miles an hour. Just a casual 45,000 miles. Now, our, our orbiting spacecraft, you know, the, the, the space station orbits at about 17,000 miles an hour. So when the space shuttles would come in or Apollo would come back in, you know, after a trip to the moon, you're coming in around 17,000 miles an hour. And you're a fireball. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. fireball, sonic booms, fireballs—the whole works. All the histrionics of the interactions with the air. The Tic Tacs weren't doing anything like this. There were no fireballs. There's no sonic booms, nothing. Mm-hmm. And then, as a physicist, you worry about other things. You know, where does all this energy come from? How much power did it take to do this? Um, where did the energy go when it stopped? 
Um, energy does it, you know, as it's moving, and it's going 45,000 miles an hour at the midpoint, which, by the way, is the speed of the New Horizons probe that passed Pluto in 2015. That's moving oh. 45,000 miles an hour. That's how fast the Tic Tacs were going, which is which is shocking. But where does that energy go? It's in then, you know, point, you know, what is it? Half of half of three quarters of a second later, you know, three eighths of a second later, it just comes to a dead stop. That energy had to go somewhere. Uh, we tried to estimate that energy. The Tic Tacs were estimated to be the size of an F-18. And we took the oh, mass, okay. we took the mass of the F-18 and then divided by a factor of 10. Say, let's pretend that the Tic Tacs were 10 times less massive than the F-18. Just to get some, try to be a little more reasonable, <laughs> you know, because what's going on is shocking. And if you do that, the power it would have taken to make that maneuver was something like um, 1,300 gigawatts of, en of power. <laughs> That's way more than the nuclear power output of the United States. What? Yes. In the little Tic Tac the size of M18. Doesn't make any sense. How much energy got released when it stopped? That would have been about 250 Tomahawk cruise missiles going off at once. That should have been dissipated somewhere. The energy has to go somewhere. Wasn't observed, right? Yeah, and we're seeing none of that. You're seeing none of that. Mm. So these things are anomalous in many, many ways. Um, they're, the, the speeds and accelerations are anomalous. The lack of interacting with the air is anomalous. There's no sonic booms, no fireballs. The energy just seemed to disappear seem to appear and disappear. We don't know why, where the energy is coming from or going. Hmm. We don't, we have no, there are, it's, so that was really the point of the paper is to, to highlight that these things are really anomalous. They're not, this is not normal anything going on here. Yeah. Well, I thank you for sharing that because I think just as a casual observer, you just see things in the sky and you go, oh, okay, that, yeah, that does seem different. So to get that whole physics perspective of it, is really important. I do um, want to take now your physics perspective. Maybe I can add one thing quickly. Yes, please. That's, that's relevant. The um, the other question that came up is, are they spacecraft, right? Are these things really spaceships? And I just had a collapse of all my papers. Uh-oh. <laughs> deal with that later. And um, <laughs> no problem. So it was precariously balanced. Uh, <laughs> getting excited, yeah, that's my, the next year's worth of papers right fine. there. <laughs> I hope you didn't need those in order to uh, publish tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so yeah. So the question is, are they spacecraft? Well, I've already mentioned that they move, as, at least in that example, was moving as fast as the New Horizons probe. But at, at thousands of Gs of acceleration, you can get to extremely high speeds pretty quickly if you can keep that up right so in the in the case of the nimitz encounter it was only it would have only been accelerating for for three eighths of a second but if you can keep that acceleration up for you know 17 hours you you'll be going 90 percent the speed of light oh man which would make of course time travel or travel which gives you interstellar capabilities right really because you're moving at relativistic speed, so time is going to go slower for you. And at that acceleration, you can get across the galaxy in about three months. What? More time. Across the galaxy, three months, traveler's time. Not the time. Okay, okay. 
for the people in the everybody in the galaxy sees it will take about eighty thousand years. Okay, but for you, the traveler, it'll take about three months. It's a three month trip. All right. This is where that movie Interstellar blew my mind was the space time continuum and learning about how a certain length of time and yeah, time is not the same for everybody. <laughs> that's really. That's really difficult. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was really eye opening for me. And I tell you what, I look at the speed of light so differently now when I heard somebody speculate that, you know what, if we are living in a simulation, then the speed of light might be the boundary that keeps us all in the simulation. <laughs> Interesting. Right. Interesting. Well, that's okay. <laughs> and so, what? What if it's the creators of the simulation that, of course, can escape that boundary, but they're the only ones that can? And it's and it's tough because our theoretical paper that we're published that we you know I'm submitting tonight is is um, in there we show that there has to be a maximum speed. You can actually prove wow. there has to be a maximum speed, which is interesting because when Einstein derived relativity. That derivation depends on the assumption that the speed of light is constant for all observers, and instead we show we're able to derive relativity and also independently show that the speed of light is constant for all observers and maximal. So it's interesting. Let, let me ask a mathematical question there. So one of the things I love, one of the pieces of mathematics I love, is we can't really fathom what it means to do something like approach infinity, for example, but mathematically it happens. But what that means in reality is not so easy to understand. So when you do the mathematics on something like that, do the mathematics show it reaching or exceeding the speed of light, or does it show it approaching this limit, which is the speed of light, but never quite reaching it? What? So the, the mathematics shows you can approach it as a limit but not exceeding, yeah. The speed of light. Right. Okay, and when you say maximum speed, you say there has to be a maximum speed. Which which I don't like using the phrase speed of light. It's unfortunately we call that the speed the speed of light because it leads to some confusion because light can slow down when it goes through media. When, it, when light goes through my glasses, mm. it slows down, right? Okay. So the speed of light's not, and, and, and light gets bent by gravity. So, the, so gravity is also changing the speed of light. Um, so it, that's a little bit confusing, but the what we in, in special relativity call the speed of light is better called the maximal speed. It's a, it's a maximal speed. Okay. So just to clarify for my brain, you are essentially saying that anything in the universe, there is a obviously a maximum speed that no matter what technology you have, you cannot go beyond this hypothetical speed in, in by by moving <laughs> i'm gonna be careful <laughs> moving <laughs> no, no okay oh warp, all right <laughs> warp, warp bubbles and things like that are a different ball game because you're not actually okay. not moving in a conventional sense gotcha. uh, so that's a different ball game but if you're talking about motion then it's then there's a maximum speed and the reason is because space and time are related to each other right when you're when you are when you're four light years away from Alpha Centauri, you're four years away from Alpha Centauri, and that, that there's a relationship between the two, and that's why there's a maximum speed. Okay. And it all goes back to the math, right? The math says you can't do it. And so, as far as we know, we can't do it. But I would be remiss, Dr. Knuth, if I didn't ask you, do you have any theories or wild speculation or favorite 
conjecture <laughs> for the nature of these Tic Tac anomalies? I don't. They have to be... They're, they're not moving in a conventional sense. They're not moving in the way that we think of in, in, in terms of Galileo or Newton or, or even even Einstein relativistic motion. I mean, the, the accelerations are way too high. You'd be you'd destroy the, the the insides of the craft. So whatever they are, it would it would it wouldn't work. So they're doing something totally different. Whether they have a warp bubble and are moving through a warp bubble like an Alcubierre warp drive or, or a version of that, or whether they're teleporting in some way, maybe bunches of little teleportations. I, I, I mean, at this point, I'm only making things up and guessing, but that's only because they can't be doing it the regular, the, the conventional way. So I want to take all of this physics that we've discussed and bring it back to sort of the human experience of what happened on the Nimitz and the correlation between what happened there and what happened on the Maelstrom Air Force Base. So from watching a tear in the sky, I learned a little bit more about what happened to some of these people who observed these Tic Tacs? And the one gentleman, I think you mentioned him earlier, it sort of ruined his life. He was tormented by oh, his Kevin Day, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and also somebody came on that ship and took all of the video <laughs> footage and left. So the same thing happened at Maelstrom. So that, that's that's the point that that's the point that gets and, and that happened at Malmstrom too. I, did, I wasn't aware of that, but I'm not surprised. Yes. Yes. At Malmstrom, the day after it happened, the, the black suits came in there. They separated every single person and pretty much said, you will you face life in prison if you speak about this to anyone, not to your family and friends, to anybody that is here, anybody that works here, anybody else that saw it. Nobody is to speak of this event ever again, or we will ruin your lives. Uh, that I, I mean, this is a story that keeps coming up, and um, this is the type of threats that Grush has talked about to Congress under oath, and it's a problem. I mean, this is democracy. So I guess my question is, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> I just got really <laughs> heated about that. Why? What do you think is the why behind the government's reasoning for taking all of this information and keeping it secret? That's tough. There are probably multiple reasons, and and some of them are not very good, <laughs> but are but are practical, and others are better than others. I think that you know. So this this has been kept quiet for. I, I don't like using the word secret because it it invokes the idea of a conspiracy theory, which which then you're blamed for. You know, you're accused of being a conspiracy theorist. Uh, I don't think it requires a conspiracy to keep this quiet. Really only have to make fun of it at, at some mm -hmm. point and everybody giggles and forgets about it because it makes people uncomfortable. So you, there is, it doesn't take a lot to keep this quiet. And in these events, these specific events like Malmstrom or, or the Nimitz encounters, all you have to do is threaten a few people and they'll stay quiet. Yeah. You know, I was pointing out in another podcast recently, um, they asked me about Roswell, and I pointed out that the sheriff had gone out and independently investigated the area, and the military detained him for five days and questioned him and threatened him. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, a good yeah. question. And that, that's good hard question. to explain it's over a, a weather balloon. It's right, a, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
And, and of course, they changed their story from a weather balloon to something else. So that means they lied about the weather balloon. So they, the government has lied repeatedly in that situation. And I often point out that the only story that's actually believable is the first one, which was put out the day after it was, it was discovered and um, and the government quashed it, right? But the local the local Air Force base put out the story that they recovered a disc. And that's probably the correct story. Yeah. It's like the, the real version of Men in Black. Because, because we know they lied about the weather balloon. They, we know they lied about dropping dummies. They, we know they lied about all these things. Because they later are saying, you know, Project Mogul or what. I don't know what the current excuse is. Um, but they have a whole string of explanations at this point, that, <laughs> too, which means yeah. that the previous ones were lies. So they're admitting to lies all the time. Yeah. Why are they lying? I don't know. I, I don't exactly know why they're lying. Um, the There's, of course, the potential concern about, you know, if there is a non-human intelligence involved and our inability to, to defend against it, if that becomes necessary. Those are both, those are two reasons for potentially having a lie right. and potentially covering this up or keeping it quiet. Another would be wanting access to the technology. You want access to the technology. You don't want another country to get the technology before you do. The third reason for, for keeping it quiet. There has been suspicion among people who have seriously looked at this, that there is a bigger secret because I think the general feeling is that those reasons for keeping this quiet for 80 years aren't quite enough and that there's something more dramatic happening that nobody has the answer to. It's the UFO cabal. And I'm starting to wonder if that's the situation. Like maybe we're actually being controlled by aliens. Like maybe aliens are running the government. It's Roddy Rowdy Piper. What was the movie? They do. They live. <laughs> Obey. Obey. But I think, I think that there's yeah, there's a potential. There's, the potential is that there's a bigger there's a bigger thing that's not been revealed yet that nobody has figured out. Right. And and that's there's a potential for that. There's a bigger secret. To be continued. Thanks. Like. Share, follow, comment, subscribe, support. What's your hot take on Travis Taylor? <laughs> I've got an exclusive for you guys if you okay. want it about yeah, the Alaska. We do. Okay, okay. More at BigfootUFO.com. All things unexplained. So some of that I think, sir, will save the post. Mm -hmm.